0: What's up, I'm Amanda Costco and you're listening to the Electric Frontway Podcast, a podcast exploring the intersection of fashion and technology. Thanks so much for tuning in. We have a jam-packed episode for you. Today, I'm taking you back to an event Electric Runway produced in March in collaboration with We Are Wearables. The event was called Women in Wearables and it brought together more than 300 members of Toronto's tech community at the Mars Discovery District in Toronto to discuss issues of gender diversity and sexism in tech. The first voice you'll hear is me. I had the honor and privilege of giving opening remarks. I use this as an opportunity to tie the activism in the fashion tech community to the political activism happening around the world, including the Women's March on Washington. Then I'll introduce an amazing panel of women working in wearable tech, including Arielle Garten of Interaction and Kate Hartman of The Social Body Lab. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that Electric Runway has an amazing email newsletter. If you want to stay on top of what's new and next at the intersection of fashion and tech, we invite you to sign up using the form on the sidebar of our website at electricrunway.com. The newsletter keeps you updated with all of our work, travels and research, as well as shares information about the newest developments in smart fashion iot wearable tech and augmented and virtual reality as they relate to fashion sign up on electric runway to get access and now to take you into today's conversation of women and wearables my opening remarks from the event of that name produced in collaboration with we are wearables on march 28th in toronto
1: all right So without further ado, I want to call up Amanda Costco, founder of Electric Runway.
2: Hello, everyone. Can you hear me okay? It is my absolute honor and privilege to welcome you to WWTO Women and Wearables Edition. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Amanda Costco, and for those of you who don't know me, I am a journalist focused on the intersection of fashion and technology as well as the founder of Electric Runway. Electric Runway has a mission to bring you stories, expertise, and inspiration from the front lines of fashion tech. We are also invested in community building, so we do lots of events including this one. And obviously my investment in fashion and technology touches wearables, which is why you've seen me on this stage before. So before I get into my talk today, I would just like to highlight a couple of events coming up that Electric Runway is going to be involved in. I'm going to be hosting Make Fashion on April 1st, that's this Saturday, in Calgary, Alberta. If you haven't heard of it, Make Fashion is a high-tech, high-fashion runway show that asks audiences to consider wearable technology beyond the wrist. And then on May 2nd, we've teamed up with Startup Here Toronto, the city of Toronto, the design exchange, and Modiface to bring you in-store, an immersive event on the future of retail, and that's here in Toronto. So if either of those sound interesting to you, talk to me after the show, and we'll get you hooked up. Now, on to today's topic, women and wearables. So it's my thesis, and I invite you to argue with me, because that's what we're all about here at WWTO, is dialogue. It is my thesis that women are emotional. And social but that's exactly what wearable technology needs right now. I think we're hard-pressed to enter into a conversation about women and wearables without first trying to define our terms and I'm not going to stand up here and try to explain what it means to be a woman. And I'm not going to stand up here and really try to do, to define wearable technology either. I think that it's a conversation that we have to enter into understanding that the terms are slippery, what it means to identify as a woman, and what it means to talk about wearable technology in today's landscape where that can mean anything as modest as a Fitbit to a fully immersive headset that puts you in a new reality. So we're entering into this conversation understanding that the terms are... Are slippery, as I mentioned. But yet, there's never been a more important time to gather together. The Women's March on Washington was the largest protest in American history, and around the world, hundreds of thousands of women came together to rise up and say no to misogyny, say no to sexism. I think that you know it's important that we take that message from International Women's Day, from the Women's March, and bring it back to our own communities. And that's really the impetus behind this event. How can we incite activism and equality in our own communities? Now, as someone who's interested in fashion, I was particularly interested in two symbols that came up from the Women's March. The first symbol was the pink pussy hats that were everywhere. And the second was the future is female t-shirt and slogan that resurfaced. I'm going to talk about the future is female t-shirt first. So this was a shirt that was originally made for a women's bookstore in New York. It was famously photographed by Liza Cohen on the musician Alex Dobkin and has since resurfaced in this Women's March as a a symbol of female empowerment. And the reason I bring it up here is to make the point that conversations of feminism today are in conversation with the feminism that came before us in this instance, second wave feminism. The second reason I want to bring that shirt up is because it provokes the question, what does that mean the future is female? Where do males sit in that future if the future is female? Or perhaps, does it mean that the future could be feminine? And what would it mean to lead our businesses and our institutions with a more feminine approach? The pussy hats were interesting for me. I think that's the first time pussy has ever been said on this (laughs) stage. So someone can tweet that. The pussy hats were interesting to me for two reasons. Number one, because they were a they were a kind of viral symbol. Women wanted to make a visual statement and the symbol of the pussy hats being everywhere throughout the marches were kind of a, a symbol for women's collective online activism. They were a meme. A meme is a unit for carrying cultural ideas. And normally when we think about memes, we think about, you know, internet gifts and things like that. But I think that the the pussy hats emerged as a living meme in real time. And what was also interesting to me about them is that they were knitted. And so they take something that is traditionally considered women's work, domestic activities like knitting and sewing, and repurposing them as symbols of activism. And so I think that can provide an interesting framework for our conversation today. So there is already a fashion connection to the women's movement But as I researched it further, I was not surprised to learn that it actually went deeper. One of the main organizers of the Women's March is Bob Bland. She's actually now become the co-founder and co-chair of the Women's March. She's also a woman from my community because she is the CEO and founder of Manufacture New York. Now if you haven't heard of it, Manufacture New York is a fashion incubator. In Brooklyn with a specific interest in wearable technology, headed up by Dr. Amanda Parks, who is one of the most well-recognized creative technologists and chief technology officers, you know, in the world. And, you know, it didn't surprise me to learn that these women were involved in the March in Washington because from my experience covering the wearable technology industry in the last couple of years, women are leaders. The women in my community are leaders, they are organizers. There are also creatives. This is Madison Maxey. She's the founder of Lumia, also based in Brooklyn. Lumia has just been given a grant to integrate heated apparel into all of the coats and blazers in Topshop. So coming to a Topshop near you, heated apparel. And that's just in Brooklyn. Those three women I just mentioned, that's just in Brooklyn. If we go over to San Francisco, we have Kristen Nylinger, who is the founder of Sensory, someone who is bringing emotion to wearable tech. Kristen is most known for her Gurmood sweater, which is a sweater that takes, it reads emotion from the palm of your hand and translates that into color on the cowl of the sweater. And this is now being used in autism research. So someone who is taking what she calls extimacy, externalized intimacy, and making it a conversation in wearable technology. We can't have a conversation about women and wearables without talking about Anouk Vipret. Vipret is an internationally recognized fashion tech designer who gives new life to the female body through her connected couture. She's very interested in biomimicry, and this is her famous smoke dress. It's a dress that literally emits smoke when the wearer feels uncomfortable, so it uses sensors and... <laughs> she also has a spider dress, which you've probably seen before as well. but. What I think is really cool about her work is she's not making tech for tech's sake. This is a new type of female expression, and it's very grounded in the female body. In Berlin, we have Lisa Lang. The women in my community are business leaders. They are CEOs. Lisa Lang is a stronghold of the wearable technology and fashion tech community in Berlin. She is taking concept and costume pieces and turning them into consumer products with the House of Electro Couture. And then here in Toronto, we have Arielle Garten, who you're going to hear from later on the panel. She is the founder of Interaction, the the makers of Muse, someone who's bringing emotion and wellness to the conversation of wearable technology. We also have Kate Hartman, who you're going to hear from later, who is a creative technologist and the director of the Social Body Lab. They have a booth outside. Without Kate, so many women wouldn't be able to envision themselves in this world because of her leadership. They're able to. And then we also have in Victoria, Macaulay Wenner, who couldn't be here tonight, but sends her regards. She's the co-founder of the Allels Design Studio, somebody who's making 3D printed and laser cut prosthetics for amputees. So they can have more of an expression with their disability. And then we have Yvonne Felix, who you're going to hear from later tonight. Somebody who has been wearing technology for the last four or five years in order to be able to see. She also is the head of partnerships at eSight, as well as the heart and soul of that company, if you ask anybody who works there. So I bring all of these points up. And I should say, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. There are so many women that I could go on to name. You know, we just don't have time to include them all in in one opening talk. But I should say that, you know, we can get on this stage and we can talk about the discrimination that women face in tech. We can get on stage and we can talk about how women only earn 75 cents on the male dollar. And I think those conversations are important, but I think it's also important to highlight the achievements of women in tech and talk about how these women are successful, not despite the fact that they're women, but because they're women, because they bring their passion and empathy to the conversation. So I hope you enjoy the rest of tonight and I'll see you later on the panel.
0: Those were my opening remarks from Women in Wearables, an event produced in collaboration with We Are Wearables in Toronto. After I spoke, we had the opportunity to hear from Michelle Holland, the Innovation Officer for the City of Toronto, as well as Karen Kwan from Meta, one of the leading makers of augmented reality technology. Karen spoke about her entrepreneurial journey as a woman on a mostly male team in a mostly male-dominated space. We also had the opportunity to hear from Anna Serrano of the Canadian Film Centre. She spoke about how we need to embrace discomfort. Anna said in light of news of toxic masculinity in the workforce, we need to learn how to lean into conversations that make us uncomfortable in order to address inequality and move forward. All three of these ladies gave amazing talks, but their words accompanied presentations which don't make much sense in podcast form. So we're going to skip forward to the panel that took place afterwards but I should mention that both Karen and Anna's talks have been archived on We Are Wearable's YouTube channel, which will embed into this podcast's accompanying blog post so you could take a look. So now you're going to hear a panel of women working in wearable technology. The panel is moderated by me, Amanda Costco, fashion tech journalist, and I'm joined by Ariel Garten, the founder of Interaction, the creators of Muse, a brain-sensing headband. She's joined by Kate Hartman, an instructor of wearable computing and the director at the Social Body Lab. And Pushren is the founder of Little Robot Friends, fun and expressive robots that make a great introduction to the world of coding and electronics. Lisa Neal is the founder of Linkits, a wearable electronic toy for social play. Sky Gillespie is the Director of Digital Communications at Ripple, a wearable support network. And finally, you'll also hear from Yvonne Felix, Head of Partnerships at eSight Eyewear.
2: Well, welcome, everybody. I think it'd be good to start by just introducing yourself and maybe give us the elevator pitch of who you are and what you do at your company.
3: Hello, my name is Ariel Garten. I am, as you've heard, the co-founder of Muse. We make a brain-sensing
2: headband that helps you meditate.
3: I'm currently on maternity leave, which is you know, a relevant part of this conversation of women and wearables, that we actually have a tech space that is mature enough that it allows people to take maternity leave and do all you need to do to raise a child while your company grows and continues to build products.
1: My name is Kate Hartman. I'm the director of the Social Body Lab at OCAD University, where we focus on body-centric technologies in the social context.
4: Hi, everyone. My name is Anne Poucheron. I'm co-founder and CEO of Little Robot Friends. We make coding toys and apps to try to help teach kids how to code.
5: Hi, I'm Lisa Neal. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Linkits, and we make social wearable toys for girls to try to encourage more little girls to gain experience and confidence with tech.
6: Hi, I'm Sky Gillespie, the Director of Digital Communications at Ripple, and we are a personal wearable security service.
7: Hi, my name is Yvonne Felix. I am head of eSight's partnership team, and I was eSight's beta tester before it was commercially available. It changed my life in a way that I decided I wanted to be a part of making blindness history.
2: Great. So we actually had a women in wearables conversation, I think it was two years ago. And a lot of the conversation centered around products. There's not enough products for women on the market. What does that mean? And the products that were on the market were just smaller, pinker versions of of their male counterparts. So now we see lots of products targeted towards women on the market. Uh, The wearable tech sector has obviously matured. Does more products equal progress? Where are we today? Open question.
6: I definitely think that
2: more products
6: equals progress. I think it's an indication that the market sees the value of the products, and that women's voices have been heard in the design and usage of these products.
5: I also think that they say if you can't see it, you can't be it. So seeing women in leadership roles in hardware companies is really important to inspire the next generation. (laughs)
2: so one of the conversations that came out of the women's march in washington was this idea of a horizontal approach to leadership and it's really about rethinking the way we structure businesses is this something you recognize in your business in your company
1: so i'm in the position i run a research lab at a university and so i'm in the position where my employees are also my students and for me I feel like I have as much to learn from them as they do from me. And I think that, you know, in a lot of the contexts we're working in, there's a lot of smart people. You know, if we're not employing smart people, then there's a problem. So, you know, looking at leadership structures that bring more people up into leadership positions holds a lot of potential.
2: Mm -hmm. Yvonne, did you want to add to that? The reason I call you out specifically is just because, as I said in my introductory comments, anyone who knows eSight knows you because you're the heart and soul of the company. You wear the product and you're the face of it in a lot of ways. So I'm wondering how you being a fixture in that organization changes the structure of the organization.
7: I was literally trying to think of how do I say it in, in two sentences. <laughs> so I think in an approach to leadership, it's taking on the task of saying that you're going to disrupt a community, a way that the world has perceived the community, and do it so boldly as to wear a technology that says, I'm going to see, as opposed to I'm going to use a cane to navigate, and acknowledging that there's a little bit of stick to itness to it. I'm the face of the company in many ways because I, I stuck to it. When the device was not commercially available, it was big, it was black, it was, the aesthetic of it was not taken into consideration. And my first sort of real step into the company was at a, at a VC meeting where I walked in, I had made my own e-site, which it didn't look like this, it was very large, but I made my own e-site Carrying case out of an old corset that didn't fit me anymore. And that was sort of my step into leadership into the company, not just as a beta tester, but as someone that was going to help dictate what our next generation was going to look like. So, being the only female at the time who had sort of taken that step forward to say, no, 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 I know you guys think it looks cool like sunglasses. However, only the eight engineers want to actually have it look like that. Hmm. And I remember some of the comments were like, are we really going to have corset bags? And it's no, 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 like we need to take a different approach to this. That it's not necessarily, and I find this quite often at our company, it's, and in my home as well, as my job's really influenced my home life. But being a leader, and, and again, as it was said earlier, is that you can learn from people as much they are leaders as you are and I spent the majority of my time learning about nonverbal communication and being able to work in a corporate environment from people that had you know may have been a little bit younger than me but 25 years of life experience seeing and I had to adapt to their environment as much as they had to learn and adapt from me and in our home there's no gender roles really or nothing that dictates gender because Mommy works full-time and Daddy doesn't, because Daddy's got to look after the kids. Mm. So their leadership is, across the board, it's it's sort of the stick and the determination to say, I'm doing this because, uh, as someone pointed out, I pointed out earlier, being uncomfortable is the precipice of, I'm going to jump, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to jump, and I'm going to tell myself it's going to be okay. And everybody around
2: is going to see that and go,
7: hey, she's alive.
2: Ariel, did you want to jump in there? I'm interested to know about how power and leadership is kind of structured at Muse. I know lots about you, but I don't know so much about how the organization is run.
3: Awesome. And I think Yvonne actually made a point that is critical in any company, which is that each and every person in the company has to be empowered to do what they think is right to see what they want to imagine come to fruition in the world. And so at Muse and Traxxon, it's really key for us that each and every person in the company is truly empowered, is really capable. Everyone is like such a phenomenal human who is so talented, it would be silly of us to create structures in which you know people couldn't shine. So for us, it's really key that each and every person can accomplish what they want in the company, can have their voice heard, it's incredibly transparent. We have weekly town halls where we share everything that happens all the time, and it's a constant dialogue. Yes, there's direction that comes out of that dialogue, And that that is the shared back, you know, down to the team. But it's never a triangle. It's never linear. It's always sort of a cyclical conversation with everyone. Great.
2: So when we talk about women's work, traditionally, women's work has been relegated to the domestic sphere, you know, cooking and caregiving. Women still are the primary caregivers. How do you think technology has changed women's work? Well, I mean,
3: Watchlist Wednesdays. workless Wednesdays, when the washing machine came into being, you no longer had to spend your entire day washing, and all of a sudden, you had all of this free time. And, you know, (laughs) thus became the myth of the woman who likes to watch soaps and do nothing all day long, because technology (laughs) does it all for her. I think these days, that was probably always a myth, by the way. We are empowered by technology to do what we want with our free time, and you have services like Foodora that allow you to prepare dinner more readily so that you can spend more time at the office, or with the kids, or whatever that choice is for you. So, technology in every way subtly reinforces our ability to make better choices in our lives as women uh, doing the double shift, or as dads also doing the double shift.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: Absolutely. And did you want to add something?
4: I think it allows men to take more, take more of a, a partnership in, in home life because you know, like laundry is so much. It's 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 not like a gender work, right? right? Like and can do laundry as well so and men should be able to cook as well all the chefs are men so you know like it's, it's it's i think like i don't know if it's just the role of technology or it's just kind of like our modern times but i think we you know we've come a long way from like women
6: doing all the the housework to be equal i also think it's enabled us to have a lot more flexibility because you no longer have to be physically present in a meeting You can really work from anywhere. So working from home is much more of an option. There's much more flexibility in schedules. So I think that there's more of an emphasis put on being able to have your work life work around your home life much more than there used to be.
7: I'll add to that. So I have two boys, 10 and 5. And so Joe, my partner, and my two boys, 10 and 5, and myself, because I travel every other week, we are all on Google Calendar. And it is, it is minute by minute. Everybody knows where everybody is. If you can imagine a five-year-old on Google Calendar, on an, it, it, maybe I'm pushing the boundaries, but the, the connectivity and socially how we engage as a family, because I'm on the road, is so different. And I had this amazing weekend, just this weekend, where there was almost no talking, and everyone mellifluously just get into the car. Mommy's going here. Five-year-old's going here ten-year-old's going here, daddy's driving and I'm working and then I'm on LinkedIn the whole time trying to organize <laughs> meetings and there's just, there's this like, just it makes life so much easier in terms of, I'm not sitting at home thinking I have to scrub the floors because that's going to make me happy and I don't know if that exists in the world and maybe that's very like, stating a gender or that's what women are supposed to do but I, I just, I don't what the world that my mother grew up in and she fought very hard, I have five sisters, for us to to go out there and say, Okay, you're all going to not sit at home and do what society has said for the last fifty years you're going to do. Thousands of years really.
2: Yeah. The angel in the house that, you know, Virginia Woolf wrote about, it's kind of a myth of the past, and I think technology has definitely enabled that. So I want to shift the conversation just a little bit to talk about personal safety devices, because we've seen a lot of them come out targeted towards women. Sky, the company that you're here representing, Ripple, actually makes a personal safety device for women. Is this creating a culture of fear? Is it normalizing violence against women? What do you? How do you think about that with your product? I would say that there is definitely a culture of fear but
6: I think that that's because of the historically fear has sold products if you think of chewing gum deodorant they are all sold based off of fear same with products like ours and I think that that's one of the things that we recognized when we were creating ripple and we started to take a different approach and we always tell ourselves how confidently could you live knowing somebody always has your back so ripple is much more about empowerment confidence Feeling like you can do anything and knowing someone is always there for you. So I think that it's very important to, like, recognize that. And I think that many people do have to worry about their personal safety, whether you're male or female, especially in today's society. I think that you owe it to yourself. So it's definitely something you, like, have to consider. Mm -hmm. So
3: they say that hardware is hard. Is it even harder if you're a woman? I don't think so. I haven't, in the world of hardware, come across any experience in which being a woman has been a detriment. I've definitely come across experiences in Silicon Valley, unbeknownst to me, where you know, you're know you not getting the investment, you're not getting the deals because you're a woman. But it's not specific to hardware. Actually, the, one of the main leaders in hardware is the Hardware Club out of Europe, and that has a huge female representation. One of the founders there is female. And it is incredibly inclusive, and you never once think about gender. Interesting. Think-
4: yeah, hardware just thinks, and, you know, like if you look at other fields that is not tech, like product design or like other stuff making, they're pretty much also include women. So it's, I don't think it's like specific to gender. It's just that hardware is part of tech and tech is male dominated. And so it's, it's hard for women to be in tech
1: in general. I think hardware is just stuff. And, you know, when we look at hardware in an isolated environment, there's no way it's harder for women than men, but it's interesting just thinking about, like, how women or young women see themselves and sometimes them not seeing themselves in, in that particular practice because it's societal, you know, what they've been taught. And it's just very interesting because I, I've had the experience of seeing a lot of young women who come through my courses, you know, who have amazing skills either in design or working with different, like, very, very technical material practices, and then they come to me and tell me that they don't, they're not good with technology, and that really I find that to be quite upsetting because like, they're, they're actually quite technological. It's just applying that to a different material practice.
5: I'd also like to say because a lot of hardware is done not face-to-face, it's done online, so when you order parts, or you order your molds, or whatever, no one knows who they're dealing with, especially if you're ordering from China, a lot of the time they can't tell from your name because it's an unfamiliar name to them, so for all they know you're a man or a woman, and so I like... Ariel never found anyone in hardware specifically saying, "Oh, you're a woman, you can't do hardware." In
2: tech, yes,
5: but hardware specifically no.
2: Interesting. So, listen, and how does education play a role in fostering an inclusive environment for women?
5: I am so glad you asked me that question. <laughs> so, I just recently was actually at a university where a woman who teaches teachers was talking about the role of technology toys And she made a really good point, which is the teacher makes a choice. When she has a classroom full of children, she can say, why don't you go play in the kitchen area? Why don't you go play in the block area? And by making those choices, by sending the children to one part or another, she's kind of giving them an idea that this is the role that's right for me, because children learn through play. So I think it's, obviously, I think it's really important to have toys that appeal to both genders, but in particular girls who are underrepresented, to give them the opportunity to build, to test, to experiment, and not just send the girls to the kitchen area, but also to send them to the tech corner, which lots of schools have now with toys like Cotapillar and, you know, the robot blocks, whose name I'm forgetting, I'm sorry, robot block people.
4: And do you want to add to that? Yeah. We have a pretty abysmal numbers that come out all the time about how very little, like, high school girls like choose to go and tech, and a lot of our a lot of what we do like at little robot friends is we teach kids how to code
8: we spend a lot of time
4: working with like younger kids and I just noticed that basically it's 50 50 like girls and boys are pretty much at you know that young age they're across the board they're all interested in the same things it's just that once you grow up and society kind of changes your thinking a little bit then the girls rub out from, like, the tech scene.
1: What we have to reinforce is,
4: you know, at the young age, get them engaged into thinking that they can also do it too. And you only do that through education.
2: And that's what Little Robot Friends does. It gives them a point of access. So if you haven't seen Anne's booth outside, it is outside. You can go take a look at what she's doing there. Alyssa, did you want to add something to that?
5: No, I was totally agreeing with Anne.
2: And I also wanted to say that Microsoft, just
5: like last week, published a study of 12,500 girls where they pinpointed exactly that, I mean, we all knew that at early age, boys and girls like science and tech and math equally, at 11 years old, that's when you start to lose the girls, and by 15, they're gone, so there's really a small window where you can encourage them and give them that confidence to keep going.
2: Yeah, because I think inherently, too, a lot of women are makers. They like to tinker, and so, Kate, I was wondering, how do you think the maker movement is influencing this whole conversation?
1: I guess I'd say that it's the thing that's nice about the maker movement is that it kind of challenges like the, the human technology power dynamic. And I, I don't think that's exclusive to females where people feel overwhelmed by their technology in different ways. Mm-hmm. But having the, the tools and the support to actually take something apart and understand how it works is really important. And I think we've seen some great pioneers you know, in the maker movement, like people like Leah Beakley, who kind of brought electronic textiles to the forefront. Uh, people like Aya Badir with Little Bits, you know, who really kind of have, like, brought out electronics in, in new formats that make it more attractive, you know, to populations that wouldn't necessarily be interested in it in otherwise. But, you know, I think, I think just kind of breaking out these tools in different forms, you know, opens up lots of new conversations with different populations. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Anybody else want to comment on the maker movement? Yeah, I think the maker movement
4: empowers people to not just be consumers, but, you know, yeah, be creators and if we empower young people to be makers, then we'll have much more creators in the future and
5: have a better future. And I want to pick up on something that you actually, Amanda, said in your introductory remarks, which is that women have always been makers. Women sew. That uses geography, <laughs> geometry. I'm sorry. They knit, which if you think about it, a knitting pattern is a program. So whoever says that women can't do this, they're wrong. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. It's just we've never recognized women's work as making, but now we are. So
1: yay. But yeah, just one bit I, think, I think like being able to get up in the business of making technology allows criticality and I think it allows people to, to think about the biases that are, are inherent in the tools that they use because they understand what's going on under the hood.
2: Because they're taking it apart. Very good. Any final thoughts before we move to audience questions? I think we're ready to throw the speaker box out into the audience and get some audience questions. Thank you very much. Round of applause for our panelists. <laughs> Questions from the audience. We have a hand up over there.
3: So it's really amazing that all you guys are in tech. Oops. Wow. Okay. (laughs) But I feel like one of the sort of lacking points in this conversation is all of you guys, even though you're amazing, are all in very women-centered technology fields. If you're thinking in mindfulness that has its roots in sort of yoga, which has a more female type of version, kids tend to be more female-centered, other than eSight, which I think is really amazing across every board. But everything here seems to be very women-focused in not only the speakers, but also the technology that you're presenting. How do we get women in more technology-centered pieces
2: outside of women-based things?
3: Hmm. So that's an awesome, awesome, awesome question. I want to kind of tease it apart a little bit, because... and and maybe sort of debunk some myths in the process, you might look at this and say, oh, Muse, it's a meditation device that's a female-focused thing. Well, we started with a brain-sensing headband that let you control lights on a building across the room. And it was actually my male co-founder that said, hey, meditation is amazing. This is going to be really the best use of this technology to empower humans all together to accomplish what we want to do in our lives. So I ask that question too a lot, and I sometimes get irritated when a lot of the conversation is just around women and technology and fashion, and that's it. And so you do need to ask the question, and we do need to really unpack that. But we also have to kind of undo this notion that fashion is just female, or meditation is just female, because I think there is an anti-male bias that we're introducing when we ask those questions as well. So thank you. It was an awesome question. Yeah, anyone else? take that? Yeah, in education
4: or in design, In other fields of work you don't really you know like it's it's in tech that we complain that women are not represented enough and which is true but I work with a lot of educators and they're pretty much 95 percent female you know maybe because it's traditional roles from when you know like we brought up the kids and teachers and all that stuff But we also have to recognize, I think, that women are also doing other equally important work, even though it's not the forefront and it's not as sexy as, like, tech startup and making billions of dollars. But they're busy. They're doing other things, and they might just, probably are just not headlining TechCrunch or whatever. But, yeah, I just feel like we have to recognize that part, too. Next question.
8: So a couple of days ago, I was reading Stack Overflow's newest report on the distribution of the ethnicity and gender in the just as coder programmers. And the numbers are not very good as as far as gender distribution goes. Like the, I think it's somewhere on still over 80%. At least the stack overflows data shows the programmers are still male and most of them over 70%, I think. I don't remember the exact number, are Caucasian. My question is Do you, as the female leaders in technology field, see this reality being one day reversed into a more evenly distributed, at least a see a 50 50, or it's always going to be more, not always going to be like, as in bioscience, the foreseeable future is going to be more male dominated, at least in the engineering department, and as far other field. In border sense, I'm, I'm trying to ask, do you see this type of the uh, occupational divide along the gender line always going to be existed? Or do you see this thing is going to be one day eliminated altogether?
2: So the question is about white male coders, programmers, and is that always going to be the status quo? Yeah, please. Okay.
5: So I don't know if you guys saw, but two years ago NPR's Planet Money had this amazing report on what happened to all the women in coded. You should definitely go out and and, and read it. But what they showed was like when I was a kid, which was a long time ago, there 90% of the doctors and the lawyers in America were male. And by 1980, it was close to 50%. And now I think like in medical school, there are actually in law school more women than men. But in Computer science, you see the line went up, up, up until 1983, and then it plummeted. And they said, why did that happen? And the reason was because, well, it's a correlation, not necessarily a causation, but they showed that that was because when the personal computer was introduced, it was marketed as a toy for boys. And so boys got more coding, they got more experience, they got more confidence, and then, you know, guys are full of confidence, and girls tend to underplay their strengths, generally. I'm not saying all women and all men. And they attribute the drop in women in computer science to that year. They can pinpoint it. So that is why it is having events like this where women can see that women can do it, that women can achieve, that women are just as smart, sometimes smarter. That is why these events are so important. And I do think that it will change. There's no, nothing inherently engineering that says only men can do it or about coding for that matter. So I think it will change to 50% and Thank you all for being here and supporting the idea that this is something women do. Thank you, I'm
1: done.
2: (laughs) Thank you. I think that's actually a great note to end on, so thank you so much to all of our panelists for being here and stay tuned for the Hardware Cup. Thank you, I won't shake your hand,
0: but thank you. So that was my conversation with Ariel Garten, Kate Hartman, and Pushran, Lisa Neal, Skye Gillespie, and Yvonne Felix, recorded in March at Electric Runway's event in collaboration with We Are Wearables called Women in Wearables. If you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It helps listeners just like you find content just like ours. Tune in next week where you'll hear from a company that wants to make any digital content, including video, shoppable. Joy Tang is the founder of Markable, a company using visual recognition, artificial intelligence technology to make fashion see now, shop now. That's on next week's episode. Until next time, here's looking towards the future. Music from today's episode by Daniel Zambo.